welcome. Um, again, just if you're on the live stream, please make sure to just sign in so we know that you're there and you could submit any questions that way as well and we'll make sure uh, they're, they're voiced out loud. Um, just for your scheduling purposes, um, uh, you probably noticed it on the calendar already, but just to say it out loud, because of the way Christmas falls this year, we don't really get a full fourth week of Advent. The uh, Christmas falls the very day after the fourth Sunday of Advent. So um, not this Sunday, but next Sunday, of course, is Christmas Eve. We will not meet on Christmas Eve. Um, you're very welcome to join us for Midnight Mass uh, that night. It's a, kind of a, a, a venerable tradition in the Catholic Church to uh, sort of at the first moment of that day to offer Mass, to celebrate Christmas, to celebrate the birth of our Savior. Um, we have a beautiful celebration of Midnight Mass here. Uh, the Archbishop celebrates it. Our full choir will be here. Um, so as, as always, you are very welcome to attend Mass anytime. But just so you know that that is on the calendar here, uh, that there will be a Mass at midnight. The cookies today, uh, please do have some. They're outstanding. They're provided by a, a, a parishioner who's, um, her name is Janet. She's a great cook. Uh, her whole family attend Mass here every uh, Sunday. And she just wanted me to let you know that she's praying for all of you, as are many, many other people. So make sure you have some cookies. Um, let's go ahead and pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Almighty God, as we prepare to celebrate the birth of our Savior, we thank you for this opportunity to come together, to strive to know you more completely, and in doing so, to love you. We ask that you bless our time together, open our hearts to receive your gift of wisdom, the truth that we might come to know he who is the way, the truth, and the life. We ask that all that we say, think, and do might bring you greater glory and honor. We commend all of our prayers to you through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right. There you go. All right. Thank you. Questions on anything before we start? So we did the church last two times. Questions on the church? Fallibility of the Pope. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, I get some of the terminology confused. Okay. Uh, are the apostolic fathers, they are the direct, like they were the students oh, okay. of the apostles. Okay. So I didn't, I don't know that I talked about that, but um, there's a, you might hear this term apostolic fathers. Yeah, so this refers to the, so I didn't, did I mention the, we speak about the fathers of the church, or church fathers, and the church fathers are the saints um, who lived in the first seven centuries. We call them church fathers because they're closer to the foundation of the church. Apostolic fathers is those that lived up in the first and second century, so the first, say, hundred years of the life of the church. And the most important apostolic fathers would be, and the most important would be St. Ignatius of Antioch. And I think I mentioned him last time. He was bishop in Antioch after St. Peter. Peter went to Antioch first before he went to Rome. He was martyred in Rome. And, and so St. Ignatius was his successor and he died, he was martyred in the Colosseum, he was fed to the wild beasts, um, alive, and um, he wrote these seven letters to the churches on his way there. So he would be an apostolic father. And so they just, they're not apostles, right? So they, the most important are the apostles, the 12 um, chosen by Jesus, one of them is Judas, right? Replaced by St. Matthias. 
And, and they are the actual foundation of the church. But the apostolic fathers are those saints that lived closest to them. And that's important because um, we want to, especially with regard to the church, we want, there are lots of churches out there, right, that claim to be the church of Christ. And so I made the claim last week, not just I, but the Catholic Church makes the claim that the Catholic, if you want to know what's the church that Jesus founded, and you, you want to be in that church, and you want to be in the church that has strict continuity from um, the apostles. Right? And that's why we speak about apostolic succession. Um, and that's the Catholic Church. The apostolic fathers can help us to see um, that it's the same church also because we can see the doctrine that they teach and that it matches um, that of the Catholic Church. Um, another important one would be St. Justin Martyr. What's that? The, okay, let's come. Okay. And St. Irenaeus. So the earlier fathers are important because they give us a glimpse of what does the church look like 100 years after Jesus' death. And it looks like the Catholic Church. So St. Ignatius tells us in his letters to the different churches, right? he's writing to these different churches, and he says, in every, to whatever church, he says, obey your bishop. And he's presupposing in every city there's one bishop, there's a council of priests. He calls them presbyters. That's a synonym, same same meaning, and a council of deacons, right? So it's the same here, right? In St. Louis, we've got one archbishop, Archbishop Rosansky. We've got 250 priests, including Father Povis, and um, a similar number of deacons, right? And so the church has the same structure in the year 2023 as in the year 107. So apostolic succession, that makes sense to me, what you're saying. But what's like the prevailing uh, uh, objection there must be, because there's so many churches that don't believe the Catholic Church do. Yeah, I mean, people, so here's what people say. That's just a human invention. But the Gospels actually show us something totally different. The Gospels show us a church. So Jesus left a church already with a government um, established, and he was careful to establish um, a church that would last until the end of history. Right? And so he built it on the 12 apostles. So what would people, I mean, I guess people would say, yes, that was true in the first generation. You had to be in the church governed by the apostles up to the year you know, 90 or 100 when John the apostle, the last apostle, died. But that doesn't make sense, right? He, they themselves ordained successors, and those are the bishops of the church. So I don't think there's a good argument, but maybe I'm um, slightly biased being Catholic, but... Um, I don't know of any good argument. Um, it seems kind of obvious. This is of all the different marks of the church, right? It's that it be one. So you want to find a church that's one. You want to find a church that's holy. That's the hardest because we don't see the heart. God alone sees the heart. And be, secondly, because there are tons of members of the church that don't live holy lives. And we, that doesn't take away. So that's the hard one. Um, Catholic, that's a little easier. It's got to be the true church, the one we want to find. It's in the whole world. And it's in some sense, equal, all right, maybe I shouldn't say equally in the whole world, but um, because its missionary um, activity reached some places before others, Europe, before Asia, etc. But still, but the easiest one by far is apostolic. 
I want to be in the church built on the apostles that still claims to have the same form of governance and, and still claims to have the successors of the apostles. And that leaves you with basically, all right, somebody might say three, the Eastern Orthodox, the Catholics, and the Anglicans. But the Anglicans actually lost their apostolic succession tragically at the Reformation because they too followed a Calvinist theology in which they denied um, holy orders as a sacrament. Do they recognize that? Yeah, um, sure. Anglican theology, though, is all over the board. There's, um, because it was ultimately, and um, the Anglicans separated, uh, maybe I should say, so Henry VIII, founder of the Anglican Church, right? And why? Because he wanted to get remarried. And so there was obvious you, and not only that, he probably wanted to be the head of the Anglican Church to make the rules himself. And so there was obvious human reasons in the founding. I mean, nobody would think, I, became, I was baptized an Anglican, but I didn't like that part of the story. Um, and, um, and so Anglican theology got decided by an act of parliament. That's precisely why we, that's what shouldn't happen, right? In other words, it shouldn't be simply human politics. That's why Jesus instituted a sacrament of holy orders to govern his church, to come from above and not from below, as it were. Um, but the, so the difficulty there is really between the Orthodox and the Catholics. But that too is simple, because the Orthodox um, are not in communion with the successor of Peter, right? And the Catholic Church is. That's the easiest schism to heal. All they have to do is come back into communion with the successor Peter. It really would be, I mean, that's what's so frustrating. It's not caused by doctrinal differences so much as simply history and lots of, you know, human um, failings over 10 centuries. Yeah, great question. All right, let's go to today's class on the last thing. So we're at the end of the creed, right? So today we'll finish the first part of the catechism, which is on the creed, and we'll move to the third part next week and then after Christmas, and that's on the Christian life. All right, why am I going from the first to the third? I'm saving the second part, which is on the sacraments, for um, the last so that you hear about the sacraments before you receive the sacraments at the Easter Vigil. Right? So the last line of the Apostles' Creed is, I believe in the resurrection of the body. And the end of the Nicene Creed is, um, I believe in the, the Holy Spirit. The, um, yeah, so the, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the dead, and life everlasting. So that's what we're going to look at today. Resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. And it's fitting for this season. So this is the season of Advent, and we're preparing for Christmas, but we're also preparing for Jesus to come again. Right, so we're putting ourselves in the mind of the Jews who were looking forward to his first coming, but we also are looking for his coming, but the second coming. Jesus will come again and raise all the, the dead, and all will rise, and the kingdom of heaven, the consummated kingdom. So we said last week, or the week before, that the church has three levels. We're in the church on earth, the church militant, we use that phrase, which means that it's a battle, it's a struggle, a struggle against sin, temptation, and death, and suffering, and, and discord, and evil. And the, there's a church um, being purified, and I'm going to talk about that today, and then the church triumphant in heaven, and we're all one church, we're not three different churches. We're simply, it's like the, the caterpillar and the butterfly. We're in the caterpillar stage, right? And purgatory is like the cocoon or something. And then and the butterfly is, is the, 
church triumphant in heaven. Um, so, so a lot of things, so basically we want to cover here, we speak the last things refers to the last things in our personal life as well as in the life of history. So in our personal life, the last thing is death. So we'll start with death, but at death, there's judgment. So there's our particular, everyone at the moment of death will have a personal judgment of our life according to our conscience. We won't be judged by somebody else's conscience or by some, I don't know, arbitrary law. Um, we'll be judged according to our own conscience, whether we act in accordance with our conscience or rebelled against it. And yes, we have the freedom to do that. And we looked at that when we looked at human freedom um, with the creation of man. Sure, we'll be judged by God, but according to what he already wrote on our heart, whether we were faithful to him in what he's written on our heart, and of course, what, um, um, what the church teaches. But what the church teaches is not something different than what's written on, in your own conscience. Um, that's why we call morality um, natural law, because it's a law written on the heart. Anyway, we'll get to that next time when we look at the Christian life. But yes, obviously we'll be judged by God, but also by the witness of our own conscience. Okay. Um, but the first thing that we're going to talk about is the last, and <laughs> the resurrection of the dead. So when we die, maybe I, let me skip this. I'm going to do a different order than what's on here. What happens? Uh, do I have anything? Okay. Let me say something about death. So what is death? Death is the separation of our soul from our body. Um, and um, so at the moment of death, our body, our, right, our body dies by no longer being able to hold on to the soul. Right? So if I get my head cut off or something. My body is no longer a fitting instrument to retain my soul. The body dies, but the soul doesn't. And we talked, that, that's strange. We talked about that a month ago or so when we looked at human nature. And we said human nature is odd. We're different than any other being. And below us, so animals have souls. That might sound really weird. Animals have um, sensible souls that are their principal. So a living animal is different than a dead animal, right? A living rabbit's different from a dead rabbit. And, and what's the difference? The living rabbit's got an animating principle, and we can call that the soul. But the animal doesn't have a spiritual soul, meaning that the soul of the animal animates the body until death, and then it's, it's gone. But human beings, we have a spiritual soul that is indestructible. And it's indestructible because it's not material. Every material thing can be destroyed, right? I can break this. To be material means that you can be broken up into different parts. Every material thing can be broken up and decomposed, right? And so that's where we speak about the decomposition of the body. But our souls are spiritual, and a spiritual thing doesn't have matter that can be pulverized or destroyed or uh, broken. And Spiritual souls can be corrupted in a different way by becoming evil, but um, that happens during our life. Um, and it's this, our soul is like an angel in that sense, that an angel is a spiritual being that is indestructible and therefore immortal, naturally. 
So our souls are naturally immortal and our bodies are naturally mortal. That's what's odd about human nature. And the way to think about it is, we say in the creed, God made things visible and invisible. The visible things are material things. The in, what are the invisible things? Our souls and the angels and God. Right, God did make himself, though. So when it says he made invisible things, that's the angels and our spiritual souls. Angels were made at the beginning. Our spiritual souls are made at the same time as our bodies at conception. And God, at our conception, every human being, and the body comes from the parents, the egg and the sperm, but the soul is made out of nothing by God and infused into that body. Right? So that's what happens at conception. All right, what happens at death? So at conception, our souls are created and joined to our body, but the body's decomposable and the soul is immortal. And so at death, the immortal soul separates from the decomposable mortal body and continues. And so that's what we're looking at in this talk, what happens to the soul at death and after death. Okay? So that's what death is, the separation of this soul. Um, the soul, I'm going to, all right, before we, the easier thing here is the body. So before we look at what happens to the soul, let's look at what happens to the body. So, so that's what we say, we believe in the resurrection of the body. And so our bodies will rise. So no matter what happens to our body, whether it gets you know, turned into dust by, in the tomb or whether it gets burned or whatever happens to our body, it doesn't make a difference. Um, God is able to raise it up. Right? And we believe this. And the, we could say the pledge of the truth of the resurrection of our body is that Jesus rose. Right? So Jesus' resurrection. Yeah. Right? So we firmly believe and we hope that as Christ is truly risen from the dead and lives forever, so after death, the righteous will live forever with the risen Christ, and he will raise them up on the last day. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies, also through his spirit who dwells in you. So right now, um, if we've been justified and are in a state of grace, the Holy Spirit is dwelling in us as in a temple. He won't allow that temple to simply um, be dust forever. He will raise it up as he did Christ's body, but with this difference. Christ's body was, so Christ truly died, meaning his soul separated from his body, right? And his body was in the tomb. His soul went to the, the dead to um, actually give them the life of God, to, to open up the gates of heaven for them. And then came and rejoined to the body, and he rose on Easter Sunday. And his body didn't corrupt. Ours will corrupt. But the end is the same, and it will come back to life as it is now, but perfect, made perfect, and meaning no longer subject to death, suffering, corruptibility, and temptation. Right? And we have to believe this without seeing it. Of course, we, and likewise, Jesus' resurrection. But Jesus' resurrection is the pledge 
that he will raise us up likewise. All right? This is something that in the Old Testament, so something that might be confusing is that if you read the Old Testament, the earlier books of the Old Testament don't speak at all about eternal life. They speak about God giving temporal promises. In other words, promise, so if, if Israel was faithful, um, the books of Moses say that if Israel is faithful, they'll get the land. They'll inherit um, blessings of you know, good harvests and, and peace and prosperity, and that they will stay in the land. If they're unfaithful, they will get exiled from the land. Death and destruction and famine, etc., will happen. That's in the earlier books of the Old Testament. The prophets that we're now reading in Advent season, the great prophets like Isaiah and Daniel and Ezekiel, speak about the resurrection of the body. And so it's part of the development of revelation. God didn't reveal it at first, which might be surprising, right? Why didn't God, why wouldn't that be the first thing? Um, I, I don't have a good answer for that. Other than that, I mean, with children, we do something similar, right? With children, we give them rewards and punishments that are temporal, right? If you're good, you know, you get candy or something. And, and then only later we'll say you need to be good, not because you're going to get candy, but because that's the virtuous, right? But the four-year-old's not going to understand virtuous. And, and so God um, did a pedagogy of the human race that is... Um, that develops and wasn't the same from the beginning. So in, in the older books of the Old Testament, the lot of the dead is called Sheol. You don't need to know this, but um, Sheol would be the place of the dead, and it's this kind of shadowy place that it seems doesn't distinguish clearly at first what happens to the good and what happens to the evil. But that gets gradually clarified that there's an immeasurable difference between the fate of the good and the evil um, after death. And the last, really, the last thing to be revealed was that not only the soul will be different for the just and the unjust, but the body will share in the soul's glory. Right? And that makes sense. So here, why does that make sense? It makes sense because we're not just, we're not an angel. We're human beings. And it belongs to a human being to have a body as well as a soul in intimate union. And it makes sense that God who made our nature this way will respect it by raising up our body. Yeah, that's it. Right? So the definitive state of man is not that which we experience with our loved ones. Say, you know, some... Um, my parents passed away, and so now their state is one in which their souls, we hope, are with God in, in heaven or being purified, um, but the bodies corrupting in the earth. Right? That's not the definitive state of mankind. Um, it wasn't our original state. He made us whole, body and soul, right? So each, at each of our conception. And he will raise up the body so that we will be whole, body and soul, for eternity. like Christ. And the body will manifest the heart. And that means that um, the, the, so 
both the just and the unjust will rise on the last day. At the, and, when Jesus, and that will be when Jesus returns. Jesus will come again. We call it the second coming. And when he comes again, all will rise, the just and the unjust. But, um, and, and that body will be uh, indestructible, incorruptible. But in the just, the body will be glorious, manifesting the harmony of the soul, but not in the unjust. We don't know what this is going to look like. We can't imagine. But we have to know this. It's not, so here's maybe the most startling thing, or the most contrary to, which, is it this body that will rise? And what do we, what's the answer? The same one. All right, look at Jesus. Was it Jesus' same body that rose? Is it the same body which is glorified? Yes, same. So we can see with Jesus, the same body. What was the proof that it was the same body? Doubting Thomas says, unless I see the wounds right over your, your side and your nails and stick my finger in them, I won't believe. And so the next Sunday, um, the Doubting Thomas gets to see the risen Jesus and he says, Thomas, stick your finger here. Um, and so clearly Jesus rose with the same body, not a different body. But that body got glorified, meaning um, no longer under the dominion of corruption, suffering, death, and temptation. Right? So the same body, but made glorious. Questions on that? Is there like, was his body made glorious briefly in the transfiguration? Yeah, so for the, in the transfiguration, he showed for a few minutes, for an hour or however long that took place, um, the glory of a risen body. And that's what Peter, James, and John saw on Mount Tabor. And that's why the transfiguration is important as a kind of mystery. Seeing the glory of his body so much so that it was brighter than the sun. Because the body in the resurrection will manifest the glory of the soul. And that means the love of the soul. right? Because the, the glory of a soul is whether we love and its lack of glory is the opposite. Okay. And, and yeah, this is a dogma of faith, something we have to believe. Right? It's not some uh, optional thing. Um, and, but it was, um, it, there were her so the earliest heresy um, had trouble with this doctrine. And that was, you might have heard this Gnosticism. So the earliest heretics were Gnostics, who it was coming out of, um, in the Greek world, um, they, Plato um, had the idea that um, the, the body was a kind of prison for the soul, and the goal of life was actually to escape the prison of this body. And similarly, in Eastern, a lot of Eastern religions who believe in reincarnation, the idea would be that um, the, the body the, is a... Um, According to one's deeds, one goes into another body afterwards, which makes no sense because it goes against the fact that our human identity comes equally from our bodies and our souls and the union of the two. We can't, it's impossible for my soul to get stuck in another body, right? Our souls are the animating principles of this body, not anybody else's. 
Um, and we don't want to flee from the body. We want the body to be glorified. Right? And that's precisely what, um, what God promises and what Christianity promises and believes in. Right? So the first heresy, Gnosticism, denied that, um, that the body would rise. And, but then you run to your problem. Why did Jesus rise? And we can see this in St. Paul. St. Paul writes about this in his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15. So at, right at the end of his first, so the first letter to Corinthians, um, if you haven't read it, you should read it. It's magnificent. He's writing to this church that he founded and going through all kinds of problems in this church. So there's a lack of unity. They had trouble with regard to the Eucharist. They, um, um, but the, the last thing that he deals with was um, some of them in this community were disbelieving in the resurrection of the body because they thought that the body is something you want to leave behind. And so he says, well, if, if God doesn't raise our bodies, it makes no sense that he raised Jesus's. If he raised Jesus from the dead, he will raise us from the dead because we're his mystical body. If our head rose, then we, the pinky, will rise too because we all hang together. Right? So Jesus' Jesus's resurrection is the pledge of ours. Question on that? So we could ask them the how and the when, and we could ask, but we can't get an answer on either one. So the how, that's a silly question, really, right? How is God going to raise, but people raise this, right? Especially if, suppose somebody, you know, you get, um, you turn into dust and that dust gets scattered and then becomes, you know, part of somebody else's body. How is God going to sort it out? Um, we don't have to worry about it, right? God will know how to do that. Um, because it's not a matter of having the same molecules. That's not what it means to have the same body. We're always... Um, but the, more than that, I'm just going to not say. And we can leave that to part, the mechanics of it, to the maker of the world. And the when, we can't answer either. And I'll, I'll come back to that. Um, but that Jesus has tell, told us, and we've heard this in, in uh, last Sunday's um, uh, readings, that he, he will come like a thief in the night. And we're to be ready and vigilant because we don't know when he will come. So nobody knows when the end will be. And maybe if we have time, we'll come back to that. Yeah, so what happens to our body and soul after death? So our body simply corrupts. And it doesn't matter. We don't have to worry about it. I mean, we want to show reverence. This is why we bury the dead, to show reverence to what was the temple of the spirit. right? And so Christians should show greater reverence to a corpse um, than anyone else because of our faith that the Holy Spirit was inhabiting that bottle, body as a temple and that it belonged to Jesus as part of his mystical body, right? And so this is why um, we prefer burial rather than cremation or something like that. Not that it, God knows how to raise up the body no matter what happens, but simply as a way of showing reverence. Um, what about the soul? So the soul is immortal, and so the, what happens at the moment of death, when the soul separates from the body, the body starts decomposing, but the soul meets Jesus. Right? And so we call that the particular judgment. Sorry. So 
particular, meaning simply individual, particular or individual judgment. As opposed to the last judgment, which I'll explain in a minute. So our particular judgment happens at the moment of our death. Um, and um, we will see the Lord and we'll understand the good that we've done. And the, in other words, we'll understand at the moment of our death what we've done in accordance with conscience and what against, and what we've done in accordance with God's law and what against. And we'll understand also his grace that has led us to repentance. And we'll understand whether we've lived according to him or against him, or as in most 99.99% of the cases, a mixture of the two, and how his grace has brought us to him. And we'll come to see that, and, um, and that's our particular judgment. And what we hope for is that we die in the Lord. That means that we die in a state of grace. And, and this is literally the most important thing in the world. Right? More important than our physical life, actually. That we be in a state of grace when death finds us. Right? And this is why Jesus says, don't worry. So he, he warns the disciples that there'll be persecutions. Right? That it's not going to go perfectly. <laughs> this is an understatement, right? Because of the apostles, all except one were murdered for the faith in terrible ways. Right? Like being crucified, Peter crucified upside down, Andrew crucified in an X, etc. And so they, but he tells them, don't worry about the one who kills the body because that is temporary. Worry about the one who kills the soul, right? And that would be Satan and sin because that has eternal consequence, right? So the most important thing in life is to be in a state of grace and to in the state of grace. There, used to, there was a cathedral parishioner who used to um, pass away a few years ago. I may have told this story. Um, whenever I would ask him, so he wasn't at this time an elderly person, whenever I would ask him, how are you doing? He would say, um, thanks be to God in a state of grace. That was his. And that's edifying, right? Because that, that's more important. I didn't ask him about his soul. I was asking about his body, right? But uh, he answered with regard to his soul. Um, so what does that mean? To die in Christ Jesus to mean, means to die in God's grace without mortal sin. That doesn't mean that we didn't commit mortal sin, right? That would only be true of you know, very few people like Mary. It means that we've repented of those mortal sins, and therefore they've been forgiven. And therefore we don't have them anymore. They don't, a mortal sin that I've repented of is no longer mine. I, that is glorious. It's mine until I repent of it. So this is why we use this language state to be in a... So every human being who gets to the age of reason, babies, let's take an unbaptized baby, is in a state of original sin. An unbaptized baby. A baptized baby is in a state of grace. Every baptized baby, without exception, is in a state of grace because they can't do anything to get out of a state of grace. Yeah. How, but once we get to the age of reason, we can. And that is um, what we call a mortal sin. A mortal sin is an act 
that goes against God's law in grave matter, in a grave way. Not in a, so I illustrated that with the taking yeah, your prayer book um, last, a couple weeks ago. Um, so a venial sin is one that isn't you know, a serious matter. But a serious matter would be, say, taking a life or doing something equivalent. And that would be severely harming someone's good name, someone's you know, bodily integrity, someone's property that they need to support their family, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, um, and likewise, something grave to my relationship with God, like um, refusing right, his friendship, not um, seeking the truth, not being caring to follow him and to seek him. Um, a grave sin, um, in addition to being a grave sin, a mortal sin has to be something that I know and that I freely choose. So let's suppose I'm drunk and I do something. I shouldn't be drunk. That might be a mortal sin if I freely chose to do that, knowing that that would happen. But what I do when I'm drunk is not something I freely choose. And so that wouldn't actually be a mortal sin, except in its cause, getting drunk in the first place. All right? Um, and similar, you know, if I'm a, you know, sleepwalking or something. Um, and then I have to know that it's wrong. So. Um, we're going to talk later about when we do sexual ethics about contraception. All right, there are tons of people who don't know that contraception is something that's gravely wrong, but the church teaches that it is. If I don't know that, I won't be judged by that as a grave sin. But if I do know it, then I will. All right, so there can be sins. Now, Obviously, the most important sins everyone knows because they're written on the heart. But there can be sins that one needs to know about them and be taught about them. And um, if someone isn't taught about them, that won't be a, a mortal sin for them. Um, we'll, we'll talk more about mortal sin in a future class. But um, So to die in God's grace without any mortal sin means to have repented of those sins that I'm aware of. Right? And then they get, once I've repented, that's the most important thing, they get cleansed by baptism. And um, if I do them after I've been baptized, the sacrament of penance or confession that we'll speak about later. Okay? Yeah. So a believer in Christ is able to transform his own death into an act of love for the Father, like Jesus. Right? This saying is sure, if we have died with him, we also will live with him. And so the key thing in life is to be with him in a state of grace and to die with him in a state of grace. Questions on that? Okay. Eternal life. That begins after death. Right? So we enter into um, a life that will have no end, but it's preceded by this particular judgment at the hands of Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead. Now this is a really, when, when you hear those words, so this is a solemn, obviously this is a solemn subject, right? But um, who's our judge? Someone who died for us. Our judge is not some you know, um, distant figure who doesn't care about us, but he's a judge who died for you and for me, and he would have done it if we were the only person on earth. And so therefore, he, and why he did that? Because he wants us saved. So our judge wants us saved and doesn't want us condemned. 
But he wants us to participate with him freely and not by way of force. And this is why, so this is the kind of, again, startling thing. He wants us all saved, but he doesn't want to impose himself on us because eternal life is like a marriage. In eternal life, we won't be, so um, another thing, surprising thing Jesus said about the resurrection, um, there were, you might have read this in the Gospels, this, some of the Jews, most of the Jews believed in the resurrection at the time of Jesus. But there was one group of Jews who were called the Sadducees, and that included the high priests and the priestly caste, who didn't believe in the resurrection of the body. And they came to Jesus one day with this funny story about um, a woman who had married um, seven men, um, one after the other, and, um, and when she dies, um, whose wife will she be? And they made this story basically to make fun of the idea of resurrection. And Jesus answered, um, in heaven, we won't take a wife or a husband because we'll, and he didn't explain it fully, but because we'll all be married to God. We're the bride. Christ is the bridegroom. And so in heaven, there won't be private marriage between particular, that's not to say that there won't be bonds still in heaven. In other words, everything, every bond of love is a beautiful thing that never dies. But we won't, um, there won't be private marriage, as it were, in heaven, because we'll all be wedded to God. Now, in a marriage, how would it be if I, um, instead of proposing my wife, um, simply impose on her that she will be married to me? That would not work, right? And Jesus doesn't do it. He doesn't impose himself on anyone who doesn't want to be his bride. That's why there's hell. And that's why there's a judgment. The judgment is according to our own choice, right? And that choice was to commit mortal sin and to stay in it. And he doesn't want that of anyone. So this is encouraging, right? It's an understatement. This is super encouraging because our judge has died for us and wants us to get there and has the power of grace to put into our hearts to win us over. And the only thing that will stop us is if we're super, super obstinate again and again and again to his grace, right? His grace, which reaches out to us to repent, right? In other words, to get to heaven, one doesn't have to have been perfect. One has simply to have repented for anything. So there's no sin that can't be forgiven if we repent. We'll come back to that when we look at the sacrament of penance. Okay, the particular judgment will be confirmed in the final judgment. So in the particular judgment, um, basically there are two outcomes. And you might say, that's, how can there be two outcomes? People are so different. Um, so the, the best um, parable about this is from Matthew chapter 25. In Matthew 25, Jesus speaks about the last judgment. He says, the Son of Man will come in glory... He's talking about himself, right? He's the son of man who will come in glory as a king, as the king who will judge. And he'll, he'll separate sheep as from sheep from goats, right? That's the, the shepherd's analogy that he uses. And um, the criterion is love, right? And so he's, those, the sheep, he will say, um, come in, you know, blessed are you, come into your father's kingdom. Um, you who, and the reason he gives is when I was hungry, you gave me to eat. Right? When I was a stranger, you took me in. When I was homeless, or you took me in. When I was in prison, you visited me, etc. The works of mercy. And then on the other side, it's those who 
and he, the reason is because what you did to the least of my little ones, you did unto me. And then for the other side, it's the lack of the works of mercy. Now again, there can be those who didn't do the works of mercy and repent, and they end up on the side of the sheep. But Jesus doesn't speak about that in this particular parable, right? Every parable um, doesn't cover the whole, but one part. And so it's by love that we're judged. And the fact is, if you think about this, every human being, um, what we do, we do ultimately for someone. And it might be that that ultimate someone that I do everything that I do, God forbid, might be myself. But what should, who should that person be for whom I do everything that I do? Right, what's the first commandment? Right, to love God with all my heart, mind, and soul, and therefore to love myself for his sake. And so everything that I do, I ultimately ought to do for God. And every human being is actually going to be in one of two camps. Is the ultimate person that I'm doing everything that I'm doing, is it me? That's a problem. Because that means I'm refusing the marriage. Whereas if the person I'm doing everything that I'm doing is God, then that makes me in the condition to be his spouse. Um, and so this is why there can be a particular judgment. And every human being at the moment of death will fall into one or the other camp. Babies can't distinguish themselves, right? It's only once we get to the age of reason that we can fall into one of these two camps, right? So no baby will go to hell because they can't oppose themselves to that. Um, but uh, once we get to the age of reason, everyone will fall into one of those camps. But most of us will need purification. I'll get to that in a minute. But um, so far, so good. Is that questions on that? Because somebody, anybody want to? Because somebody could easily object that people are too different to fall into two camps. And yes, there are incredible differences in both heaven and hell. In hell, there. So if you, anybody's read Dante's Inferno. Hell, the way Dante, so this is just Dante's imagination. That's not Christian doctrine. But um, it's based on Christian doctrine. And he imagines hell with seven levels. And they're not at all the same, right? What we do um, against God and neighbor can be very, very different, right? Some sins are much graver than others, even though both are mortal sins. And so there are going to be levels of being further from God in hell and levels of being closer to God in heaven, right? Mary, so heaven is not just everyone equal. Um, that wouldn't make any sense because in this real life, some love more than others. And the love with which we die is that love with which we get judged. And so we want to die with more love rather than less. But obviously we want to die with love rather than its absence. So the particular judgment is precisely this um, judgment. And there are th three possibilities in this judgment. Um, suppose I'm um, found in Christ in a state of grace, perfectly purified from habits of sin. In that case, I'll go immediately into heaven. But it's reasonable to think that there might not be that many people who go immediately into heaven. 
Only God knows. We don't know that. We can't know that in this life. And then there's another group who immediately will go into hell. And that is those who have lived for themselves to the end. I just think of that. If you read um, Dickens and um, Christmas Carol, Scrooge, right? Scrooge converts. But suppose Scrooge hadn't converted. That's the whole point of the, if he hadn't converted, that would be, or you can put your, whoever you want in. I mean, we can't know these things, but it seems like somebody like Adolf Hitler would die putting himself above God. But most people probably, we can hope, are in the middle. We can hope that that number that goes straight to hell is few, God only knows, and that um, the greater number are those who die in a state of grace by having repented, but not fully purified or detached from habits of sin. And it makes sense, and it's also part of God's mercy, that he would purify us. And we call that purgatory. So purgatory is temporary, and it's good in this sense that everyone who gets, so if I die in that middle state, I'm going to end up on his right hand. Right? So that's in, in Jesus' parable of the, the, the son of man, who, the right hand being the sheep and the left hand the goats. Everyone who goes to purgatory ends up in heaven. No exceptions, zero. Um, everyone who goes to hell stays there for eternity. Right? That's fixed. What's not fixed is this middle purifying place because it's, it's the whole point of it is that I get out of it um, and that we want to get out of it sooner rather than later. But it's good to go through it. Here you can take this analogy. This is from C.S. Lewis. All right, C.S. Lewis wasn't Catholic, but he wrote magnificently about purgatory. He has got a whole book, The Great Divorce, that's basically about purgatory. Has anybody read The Great Divorce? I recommend it. It's, it's fantastic, C.S. Lewis. And um, so he imagines, imagine if everybody in hell were allowed to come up to, um, kind of to see heaven. And he imagines this bus where they get up, you know, and they go, and it's just free. Anybody can go up there. But they hate it there. They don't like it, and they go back down. But if they do stay up there, they get purified. And so he uses this other analogy. Suppose you get brought before the king of kings, right? Jesus. You're brought before Jesus, and you find out, oh, my goodness, my robes, my um, clothes are in tatters, cloaked with mud and excrement and, uh, and blood or whatever, um, and he says, well, you can enter as you are. And I would say, couldn't I be washed first? And he might answer, this is from C.S. Lewis, it might hurt. Even so is the answer. Right? In other words, we would want to be purified to enter into heaven. And so purgatory is mercy. It's God's mercy hastening what was, but what he would more prefer, what would God more prefer? if that purification took place here on earth. And how does it take place here on earth? Just exactly as in that parable of the sheep and the goats, all the works of mercy, whether they're physical works of mercy or spiritual works of mercy. That's how we get purified. In other words, through acts of love. Questions on that? That's right, we're washed and rinsed. I had an interesting ex- ex- um, experience about this. So I had a friend, I used to live in Italy when I was doing sculpture, I was an atheist at the time, and I had a friend who was a communist atheist, 
And um, his father, though, was, uh, you know, a, um, a Catholic who wasn't on fire for the faith, but kind of going through the motions. Uh, that may that's not fair. That's the way my friend talked about it. I, I didn't know him. And so he had a dream after his father's death in which his father appeared to him and he was washing clothes, his own clothes. And he was saying, he said to his son, I'm, I'm going to butcher this, but something to the effect that um, I'm able to, um, something to the effect that he was able to wash his own clothes. And so my friend took that as, wow, that's, a, that's exactly the Catholic understanding of purgatory. Um, and that it makes sense that my friend would have gotten that dream because it's an obligation of sons and every friend of someone who's passed away to pray for them so that that purification can happen more quickly and through the aid of, um, of those who love him. And so this is actually another beautiful and merciful doctrine. It means that we can do something to help our loved ones who have passed away. Because so often, so I think my parents passed away. And I mean, they did so much for me, right? Growing up, just like any parent. And then it's beautiful and merciful of God to enable um, children to do something for their parents after they've passed away. And it's just simply praying and offering all the ordinary things of life for them and above all, offering the Mass for them. We'll co come back to that in a minute. I got ahead of myself here. Ah, let's talk, so we're going to come back to that, but let's do heaven first. So what is heaven? Heaven is seeing God face to face. So heaven is happiness, definitive and supreme. So definitive meaning it has no end. So the and that makes sense, right? So heaven is perfect happiness. Perfect happiness wouldn't be perfect if I was afraid I could lose it. So happiness on this life is never perfect, right? Because whenever, whatever it is, whether it's I'm you know, physically well, I can lose that. I'm um, in a state of grace, that too I can lose. Not, it won't be, um, God will do everything to, to keep me from that, but I can betray him. Um, and so in this life, we don't have ever definitive happiness. And the same thing obviously goes with our loved ones, right? Um, but heaven will be definitive in that sense that it will have no end. All right, we can't even take that in. And then supreme, meaning more than anything you have ever desired. That's what we're talking about. And again, you can't take that in. One of my favorite lines here is from St. Paul, 1 Corinthians 2.9. C-O-R stands for Corinthians. And it's, St. Paul says, I has not seen, ear has not heard, it hasn't entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. I has not seen, meaning no one has seen anything that looks anything like heaven. Ear has not heard, even Revelation. So we've heard a lot of things in Revelation. We've heard precisely that line for example, and other things that we're hearing in the liturgy during Advent, like Isaiah speaking about a feast last Sunday, a, a sumptuous feast, or, or I forget exactly when that was recently. Um, so we've heard something, but what we've heard is nothing compared to the reality. And it hasn't even entered into the heart of man. In other words, my wildest dreams of the happiness of heaven are going to fall infinitely short. And why is that? Because God has promised a happiness that's not 
properly human, but is divine. And we did this in the very first class, if you remember, those of you who are here, that um, God has not prepared for us a merely human end, which would be a human happiness without end. But he's prepared for us a share in his own divine, God's own happiness. And that is the happiness of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is a communion of persons. And we're going to enter into the life of the Trinity. And part of that life of the Trinity is that it's eternal. It doesn't have an end. doesn't have change. And we'll enter into that. Um, uh, that is not something that we can imagine. And if we can imagine it, it's not heaven. All right? And what will happen there? It'll be... Um, so our happiness will perfectly satisfy every natural desire. So one natural desire we have is to, um, to know the face of God. Right? God is un so here in this life, we believe in God. Right? It's the first thing in the creed. But we don't see him. Right? So we believe in a God whose face we don't see. And by face, I mean the human face of Jesus, but also something analogous for Father and the Holy Spirit, and for Jesus as God, as the Word, as the Son. So there's a natural desire to want to know, to see God as I can see you. That will be met in heaven. In heaven, we will see him as he is. That's what... Um, the New Testament prophecy. The Old Testament doesn't, this is, again, there was a development in the Old Testament revelation about the last things. But the prophets long for it. In the, some of the Psalms, there's a, um, the psalmist prays, Lord, when I awake, in other words, when I awake from the sleep of death, um, let me see your face, your face I long for. Right, so the Old Testament prophets longed for it, and Jesus promised it. Where did he promise it? In the Sermon on the Mount, in um, the Beatitudes. He said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And then Paul wrote about it in 1 Corinthians 13. And he's speaking there about love. So 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is one of those must-read chapters, um, if you haven't read it. And it's a praise, it's often used in weddings because it's a praise on love. And it's, so he compares love to faith and hope because there are three theological virtues, faith, hope, and love, or faith, hope, and charity. Faith and hope are for this life because faith is seeing something, is believing in what we don't see. Hope is hoping for something we haven't yet attained. So in heaven, faith and hope will pass away, but love will never pass away. All right, so St. Paul uses that context to so faith will pass away. Why? Because we will see. We will see him as he is. Right? That's, so we call that beatific vision. Beatific vision because it makes us perfectly happy to see God. And what does that mean to see God? It means to see that he is love. To see that he is goodness. And he's infinite love and infinite goodness. Right? So here on earth, the most, some of the, mo the most beautiful thing, really the most beautiful experience I think that any of us ever has in life is seeing the love of another person, especially when that love is sacrificial. Right? Seeing God is seeing infinite love 
And again, we can't imagine what that is. And infinite love, not in the abstract, but for us and for everyone that we love. And together with love is communion, right? Love um, is the bond of community, right? Making friendship and making, and so heaven will also be a perfect communion that's horizontal as well as vertical, right? So the cross I use. So the, the vertical is perfect union with God. Like, and so scripture uses two metaphors here that are, I say metaphors because the reality is more, not less. Um, the first is we've made sons of God, right? So we're made sons of God at baptism. And so we're gonna, heaven will be the union of a son or daughter to, to the father. But scripture also uses the analogy of spouses. Christ is the bridegroom, the church is the bride. And so the communion of heaven, the vertical communion with God, is that we're married to him. We're his, so it's, it's both things at the same time. We're his sons and daughters, and we're married to him, because both of those fall short of the reality of that communion. But there will also be horizontal communion, in the sense that we'll have a perfect friendship with everyone who dies in the grace of God. And that, too, is part of the longs of the human heart. Every heart longs for um, a communion that is... Um, so take in the family. The worst pain in human life is when there are divisions in the family, right? Precisely in that community that is meant to be the closest and most intimate. So the betrayal, say, um, of a spouse um, or children who leave and never return, um, parents disowning a child, whatever it may be. That, but we would want, um, everyone seeks a bigger communion than just the family, and that is our group of friends, a communion in, um, uh, a social communion that has all different levels, right? So we even desire a communion in our country, but obviously it doesn't happen. And again, one of the terrible things in human life is deep divisions within um, a community, and even a large community, such as a country, um, and in the church, right? And so in heaven, that communion will be made perfect because what blocks communion is sin, right? Sin and selfishness and pride. That's what divides. And if that's taken away and taken away forever, then communion will be perfect. All right, again, we can't imagine what that perfect community... That means that no longer will anybody be falsely judging us or falsely judging others and anything that can put a block into um, the perfect um, sharing um, of friendship in the whole city of God. So city of God is a phrase used by St. Augustine to speak of heaven. Right? It's going to be a city in the sense that it's part, it has a social dimension. So a lot of people, I think, think of heaven as just kind of me and Jesus or me and God. But that would be to miss out on a huge part of what heaven really will be. And that will, our hearts are made for something, a communion that's rich in every sense. Right? And it'll include our bodies, right? Our bodies have to raise. So um, if we die, let's say perfectly purified, we'll see God right away. And if we have to be purified, we'll see God as soon as we've been finished being purified. Our bodies will also share in this perfect happiness, but for that we have to wait. We have to wait until Jesus comes again. 
but that won't detract from the happiness of heaven. It'll simply increase it when that happens. Yeah. Questions on that? So the blessed right now, so all of the, the people that we invoke as saints, St. Peter, pick your favorite saint, St. Therese, St. John Paul II, and that means when the church gives someone the title of, of saint, and we have the assurance of the church that they're already seeing God face to face and their purification is finished and their models for the faithful. Right? And so right now, already, there's a whole communion of the blessed in heaven. And that starts as soon as our purification is finished. Questions on that? So we don't have to wait for the general resurrection to see God. And yeah, the angels are also part of that, the city of God. Right? So it's a communion with St. Michael, St. Gabriel, as well as St. Peter and Mary and and Jesus. And the only two bodies that we know are there, so we know there actually are bodies in heaven already, and before that, and that's Jesus and Mary. Right? So Jesus, because he rose on the Easter Sunday, and Mary um, on account of her assumption into heaven. But for the rest of us, we have to wait till the last day. Is that a beautiful vision? We already explained that. All right, so purg purgatory, I think we've already explained. So it's entirely different from the penalty of the damned. This is really important. Purgatory is not the same as hell. Right? That is an understatement. Everyone in hell loves self more, in effect, hates God. They might not say it as such, but that's why they're there, because they've loved self over God. Everyone who's in purgatory loves God over self and is sorry for has repented for their sins, but is continuing to be purified. And so the state of purgatory and of hell are opposite in that sense, opposite interior attitudes. But both do involve suffering. And that's the way to think about this is in this life, if you think about your own experience or I think about mine, and those times in which I've had spiritual growth generally are those times in which there's been hardship and pain and suffering of some kind. And so that was, in my case, the conversion would never have come about without a particular form of suffering. And so very often in human life, we see that suffering goes together with spiritual growth. We don't mature without those conditions of suffering. And so that's why it makes sense that in purgation, there'll be a kind of suffering, but a temporary one that one knows is for one's good and will have an end. And we can leave it that we don't know any details about the suffering of purgatory. We assume it's not physical, though. Um, well, no one in purgatory has a body. So yes. Yes, but is it analogous to physical? Perhaps. All right. Hell will be physical, though. It will be. They'll get their bodies back. But the principle, yes. So in hell, yes. And so let me let me hold that just for a second. Do I have a second? No, I don't have a second. Let's do it right now. Let's, so what is hell consistent? And so we have four minutes here. And sorry, this class is going to end with hell. Um, <laughs> but let me, let me see if I can put a better spin on this. Um, so hell is, yes, what we want to avoid. 
Um, but it is also part of God. So what we should not think is that this is you know, coming from vindictiveness or, or something like that. It, too, comes from love and mercy. And it's the fact that God treats us as a spouse who he's wooing and he allows the freedom to. So no one goes to hell except by their own choice. Right? That's why no baby goes there. Um, and um, no one goes there without having committed mortal sin and staying in it without repentance obstinately to the end. And for everyone who's in that repentance, God reaches out. So no one goes to hell without God reaching out to them with graces to call them back but they don't. So it's something chosen. So what is the principal suffering of hell? It's what I've chosen. And what I've chosen is to make myself the center of the universe rather than God. And so what's the result? God respects that. And therefore, hell is the state of separation from him, not being in relation with him. If I haven't wanted that relationship during this life, he allows me to get what I want. And we might think, wow, it would be better if you didn't allow me to get what I want. But he respects our choice that we've made basically in mortal sin. Now, maybe our choice is against my neighbor rather than directly against God. But it comes down to the same, right? Because he says, what you did to the least of my little ones, you did unto me. So the principal suffering of hell is eternal separation from God. In, right, for whom we were created, and in whom alone the heart rests. Our hearts are restless unless they rest in God. Look, in hell, what, am I, what goods are there going to be for me to rest in? The good of me, that not very satisfying. Sorry, um, no offense to anybody. But that's, I mean, none of us are infinite good, and our hearts are made for resting in infinite good. And so if our hearts rest in ourselves, they rest in poverty. And so that's, hell is so... It's a futile, self-chosen poverty, but we're capable of landing there. In addition, do I have that here? In addition, there also will be some pain that's bodily in hell. Um, and the way to think about this is because not a, some sins involve willing the pain to another human being, right? So if, I'm, if my mortal sins are willing pain to others, it would be part of justice that I experience what I willed others to experience. All right, but what we can't, and God is merciful also in that respect, but he's both just and merciful at the same time. But the principal pain is separation from God. All right, why does God permit this? And, well, he doesn't want to permit it. He wants all to come to repentance. And this was the reading today. Our second reading, if you've been to Mass today, was um, God desires all to come to repentance from the second letter of St. Peter. And he's patient. And this is why he allows us a whole lifetime. Right? It's not, it could be I commit a mortal sin, and he gives me time. And he doesn't you know, take me right at that moment, but he gives us a whole life. But of course, we don't know how long that life lasts. And that's why we need to be always vigilant, right? But he desires all to come to repentance and he gives grace to everyone, no one accepted. He didn't make anyone to go to hell, right? So what we must not think is something that Calvinists do think. And that is that God from all eternity elected some and reprobated others independently prior to any works. 
That's inconceivable. That can't be. Does everybody see that? God made all to be saved. He has a universal salvific will. And if anyone goes to hell, it's only by resisting many, 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 many graces that God keeps on giving. All right? So God doesn't predestine anyone to hell. That's a heresy. Right? That would be Calvinism. And so... Um, he respects it. Final judgment, so yes, we don't have to end with hell, but I've almost run out of time. Final judgment doesn't add anything to the particular judgment. So somebody might ask, well, why is there a final judgment? Jesus spoke about the final judgment. That's precisely the sheep and the goats being separated and the sheep on one side. The reason for the final judgment is because we're not simply individuals. We're social beings. We hang together. We're parts of society and history. And so the last judgment will be something that all of us want, and that is, why has God allowed all the things to happen that have happened, right? Everybody wonders, why did you allow this, you know, tornado, this hurricane, this world war, this holocaust, my family members? Um, we have tons of questions about why God has permitted what he's permitted. And what we don't see when we read the newspaper, we see the murders and the tragedies and the you know, genocide. But what we don't see is all the hidden acts of goodness and all the ways in which God's grace has been at work in human history. So very often it's like... Sometimes people use the analogy of a Tur Turkish carpet. If you look at you know, the, the, the right side, it's beautiful. And but if you look at the underside of a Turkish carpet, it doesn't make any sense. We're looking at history from the underside, as it were. And part of the reason for the Last Judgment is to see the whole of what God has done. So it'll be a judgment for um, societies, and obviously for individuals, but as members of society and will understand the whole of God's governance in history and precisely the hidden graces and the hidden good. We tend to think of the last judgment as something terrifying. That's a huge mistake. We should think of the last judgment as the vindication of God's goodness in which all that is hidden. That's how Jesus speaks about it, right? He speaks about the last judgment as what is hidden will be made manifest. What you whispered on the you know, rooftop will be, no, what you whispered in the corner will be shouted from the rooftops. It'll be the making manifest of love in human history. Love which gets hidden in this life because it's not glamorous or uh, sensational. And the invisible working of God's grace and how his love has been involved in the whole of our lives and the lives of human history. And it'll be eternal life, the last judgment. In other words, it's not something, I don't know, it'll be um, part of the life of eternity, seeing that glory forever. And on that note, I'm going to leave you. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. We give you thanks, Almighty God, for all the gifts of your grace to bring us into your kingdom and your city, that we may find ourselves with the saints on the last day. Through Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. When the saints go marching in, right, may we be in their number. Uh huh.